and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, spirit-filled, non-denominational church and we hope to be meeting in a new building somewhere in the Los Feliz area very soon in 2021. We are in a new phase of lockdown life. The first Sunday of each month will be a live Zoom service at 10.30am. Do join us for those. We found it to be pretty soul-restoring to get together in a way that feels real, virtual as they may be. The other three services of the month are pared down, consisting of just a talk and a song of worship. We plan to provide you with more online worship and teaching resources, and to pour our energies into more personal connections. We're praying for you, and we're here. Enjoy this week's podcast. I hope you're doing uh, okay. This is, and this is the most exciting thing um, you'll hear all day, is that I think we are entering the end game of purely online church at least um, in part. We're hoping to open up very, very soon in-person services. In fact, the service, the weekend we're looking at is two weeks' time, Easter Sunday, uh, which was the day we launched the church back in uh, 2017. It's very exciting. Um, we will, of course, continue to offer everything that we're doing uh, in-person online as well. So for those unsure about gathering together, you'll be able to uh, access spread services. Nevertheless, please pray for all that needs to happen uh, in the coming days and weeks for us to open up. It has not been a straightforward process. It turns out that finding, leasing, organising parking, changing the use with the city, getting all the right permits uh, to change a commercial building into a church in Los Angeles during a pandemic is not entirely straightforward. But we're getting there. Uh, people have um, been, the staff team and a bunch of very uh, long-suffering, wonderful volunteers have been working very hard to get this done um, and it's looking like it's coming together. We'll tell you more tomorrow uh, about the space in particular and also how to register for our in, uh, outdoor services on Easter and going forward. If you are able to volunteer your time for anything to help with this process of moving a church to a new place, moving gear, setting up COVID safety things, uh, decorating, putting up shading for outdoor services, etc, etc, etc. Please can you email sally at bread.church, sally at bread.church. We will need lots and lots of help, so please don't be shy. Anyway, in the meantime, we will be continuing our series on what the church is for and how it both is the antithesis of and the antidote to the sort of big problems that we all too often see in our culture. We've looked at uh, the problem of self-serving individualism, of self-serving power, of racism, of greed, etc. And this week, how the gospel overcomes hatred and fear. Now, I don't really want to talk about negative things. I much prefer talking about positive things. But as much as it's not enjoyable highlighting the problems of life, without identifying the problems, we are obviously never going to get to the solutions. So I need to talk about hate. There is a lot of vitriol flying around in our country at the moment. Spend five minutes on Twitter and you will see that people aren't always terribly nice to one another. Just by way of one simple stat, anti-Asian hate crime increased by 150% in 2020. It's gone up more since. And of course, this week we have seen a 21-year-old man, little more than a teenager, murder eight people, predominantly Asian women, in Georgia. There is a lot of hate. Now, 
I'm not as interested in the questions of why this is happening at this particular moment. Much has been said and written about um, the factors that might be contributing to this, to that the people are able to feel more open about their hatred. They can display it more um, uh, freely. And it may be the pandemic, it may be the political climate, it may be lockdown, it may be increased use of social media, etc., etc. I'm just not sure that knowing why people are these days more emboldened with their vitriol is as helpful as something else, because we can eliminate the displays of people's hate, and that has some value, but eliminating the hate itself is going to be of infinitely more. And it is, of course, what Jesus has always been most concerned with, because he says it's not just what comes out of a person that defiles them, but what's in their heart, because murder doesn't operate in a vacuum. It proceeds from hatred. In the same way that adultery doesn't uh, just operate in a vacuum, it proceeds from lust, stealing, from greed, etc, etc, etc. So Jesus is less keen on putting band-aids over the issues, covering the problems up so that we don't see them, as he is with getting into the operating room and performing a spot of open heart surgery. It's just so much more effective and he is the great physician uniquely qualified to do it. Now, I want to encourage us just as we start, while it's very tempting to sort of make this talk about the hatred we see in other people, you know, those hate-filled, vitriolic people that we don't like, I want to encourage us, as I encourage myself, to also kind of look within, to think about our own lives too. Now, I don't think I'm a hateful person. I don't think I hate anyone. But I know that I can think some pretty awful things about people from time to time. And I know that sometimes I can verbalize those things and I can do and say some hurtful, deeply hurtful things. Often it actually can start with genuinely righteous anger. Now, there's nothing wrong with righteous anger. Jesus got angry when he saw injustice. And when we get righteously angry, it is because we're reflecting something of the image of God in us. The, the God who cares when injustice is done and doesn't stay silent. However, I'm sure you've never done this, but often I may start with some, I think, righteous indignation, but then it quickly spills over into either self-pity or self-importance or a heady mix of the two. Basically, I'm better than everyone else and everyone else should be more like me because the problem with the world is everyone else. I'm sure you've never done that, as I say. Anyway, the Christian game, let's remember, is a pretty simple one. It's not always an easy one, but it is a pretty simple one. It's about being honest with ourselves and opening ourselves up to letting Jesus change us. Simple, but not always easy. But for reasons known only to himself and ones that we may think are stark raving bonkers, God has nevertheless chosen the church to be the hope for the world. You and me, I know, what was he thinking? He could have chosen Superman. But instead he chose you and me, and people with names like Carl and Gloria and Jen and Samantha. No offence to Carl's and Gloria's and Jen's and Samantha's, but a motley crew, to say the least, of people like me and people like you. But, therefore, 
given that this is how he's chosen to do things, the more we, the church, can be honest with ourselves about where we're at and we can open ourselves to him loving us and patiently and kindly changing our hearts, filling us with the power of his spirit, the more the world will look like it's supposed to. Because we are not alone in this endeavour. He has given us all the power of heaven so that we might be his people and we might build his kingdom. But just in case we're in any doubt, here is a story of miraculous change by the power of Jesus from the book of Acts. And this is what God has always done. It's what he is doing now and it's what he always will do. So let's look to him for our help. This is the very famous story of Saul's conversion from Acts 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go! This is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hand on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So there's a lot in there, and I'm only going to concentrate on um, a few aspects, mainly on what Saul was like and the hatred that filled his life. And in case we're in any doubt about who this Saul character was, Luke, the author of Acts, is, very, is at pains to make it very clear. Uh, Saul was breathing out murderous threats. Easy for me to say. Verse 1. The air Saul breathed was the air of hatred. It coursed through his lungs, it oxygenated his blood. This was a man of murder. Such was his disgust at these newly formed followers of Jesus that, verse 2, he was willing to ride all the way to Damascus, a 300-mile trip, probably close to a week's-long journey, just to round up Christians. And all Christians, too. There was no discrimination. Women as well as men. This level of hate is so strong that there is no compassion for the more vulnerable. It does not discriminate. And according to Acts 26, it was not just prison he was sending Christians to, it was execution as well. This is deep-seated hatred. 
On the one hand, it is down to a point of principle or belief. For Saul, Christian belief, the idea that Jesus is the Son of God, is blasphemy and it is a sin and it is a sin that should be punishable by death. So it's religious fanaticism uh, that he's really involved in here. It's based in actually what he believes about the world. But on the other hand, I think it's fair to say that something else is going on on a psychological and emotional level. And this is reading a little bit into it, but I think it makes sense. Because the desire to put to death a group of people purely because of their beliefs must also speak of a threat to Saul that he feels within himself, a fear that his sense of self is being attacked. And perhaps it's to this that we can more easily relate. It's not hard to imagine just what that threat to Paul's sense of self would have been. This is, uh, after all, Saul who, uh, when he becomes Paul, later confesses to being someone who um, was at the height of religio religiosity. He conformed to the strictest sect of Judaism. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He boasted in himself because he really was faultless when it came to religious observance and piety. He, maybe unlike anyone else, could legitimately look down on other people and say, you are not as good as me. I am better than you and I can prove it. Look at all the things I do. So this is the man who is then confronted by these Christians who preach unmerited, unconditional grace. There is no standard to be met for them. God's love and delight and forgiveness and the power of his spirit is poured out on all who want it, whoever they are, however they are, whatever they've been doing, whatever they've done, wherever they are. And this they preach. Christianity about not gathering together all the shiny, perfect, morally uncompromised ones who are then able to exclude and look down on the dirty ones for the fact that their faith says we're all a little bit dirty, but everyone is welcome all the same. No wonder Saul was threatened. As he later goes on to admit, the gospel of Jesus was saying to him that all you have built your life on is valueless in the light of what Jesus has done. No wonder he was angry. And then, of course, to be confronted by the behaviour of Christians, who have, we have seen as um, earlier in Acts, are full of joy and life and freedom. And they look after one another. And... So no one is in need, and they turn the other cheek. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, whose stoning Saul was present, offers no defence of himself. And the text said that he died seeing a literal open heaven and the words of Jesus speaking to him. And then, as he's dying, he asks God to forgive those who were stoning him. I mean, if that's not turning the other cheek, I don't know what is. And it must have sent Saul absolutely do lally. And not just their behaviour, he would have seen and heard the things that, Christian, that the Christians were doing, the supernatural acts of raising people from the dead and healing all sorts of disease, and that they really, really care, that they were known throughout the Roman Empire as the ones who cared for the sick when no one else would. So not just words, but deeds and behaviour too. What a threat it must have been to Saul. No wonder he, in his own words, was obsessed with persecuting them. Now, you and I, I don't think, are religious extremists. I hope not. But it's an interesting question to ask ourselves. What is it 
that threatens our sense of self? What is it that makes us react uncharacteristically or disproportionately aggressively? I know for myself that if I feel um, the least bit kind of controlled by other people, if I know or I sense that someone is trying to organize my behavior, if I feel just a tiny bit that my freedom is being threatened, it makes me very anxious. I am. Um, uh, it, and that sort of anxiety sort of spills over and it can become uh, quite aggressive, quite angry, because I don't like that feeling. If I can be very honest with you, it comes from this deep historical belief that I'm alone and that uh, I'm on my own and that actually it's better to be alone and on my own because if you let people in too close, they will take your freedom away. It's a brokenness, ultimately, and it's one that is still a wound there that is being healed as I try to um, allow God to heal me. But it is a wound nonetheless. But enough about me. What about you? What is it that so threatens your sense of self in this way? Now we're not talking about what is right and wrong here. We're talking about that which, whether it's right or wrong, you experience as such an attack on yourself that it makes you react disproportionately aggressively. Let's play a little game. If I say liberal identity politics, what does it make you feel? What about Fox News enthusiast or white privileged male or gun rights activist or pro-choice feminist? What is it that makes your blood begin to get a little bit hot? Whatever they are, they will come from some wound in us that hasn't quite been healed. When uh, Ziggy, our pet dog of questionable ancestry, got his claws clipped, uh, they were too short, they cut them too short and they started bleeding. And he would kind of walk with a limp trying not to touch them. And because we are good, loving dog parents, um, we would try to care for him and soothe him and comfort him. But if we got anywhere near those claws, he would let out a very high-pitched yelp and retreat, tail between his legs, cower in the corner and then uh, sometimes get a little bit more aggressive. This is what our unhealed wounds can make us as humans do too. We yelp and we retreat, or we yelp and we snarl whenever they are touched. But the power of Jesus heals everything. Both misguided beliefs that fuel bigotry and the fear that reacts to threat. The gospel says to Saul, there is no hierarchy in the kingdom of God, that we all sit down as equals. None are more qualified, none are better. We're all of equal value, and that value is infinite. And the gospel defeats all ungrace. The ungrace that the whole of our merit-based culture operates on. Who are you? Where are you from? What have you done? What have you achieved? This is how we organise society. The kingdom of God organises it completely differently and says, you are all welcome, whoever you are. Consider Ananias, tasked with welcoming Saul, the murderer of Christians, into the Christian fold. He protests Ananias to God about what he's got to do, but ultimately is obedient. And in his very first interaction with Saul, he places his hands on him and says, verse 17, Brother Saul, brother, 
This is the language of grace. This is the power of gospel and of the gospel. This is Ananias having the gospel flooding through his body. He knows that this is his brother. There are no enemies anymore. The gospel does not say, what took you so long? The gospel does not say, you've got a nerve turning up here after what you've done. It does not say, well, you're going to have to pay a price. It simply says, we're so glad you made it. Come on in. And secondly, the gospel heals the wounds of fear and threat. The antidote to fear is not boldness, although it may appear that. It's not actually self-confidence, as if we can sort of just positively think our way to less fear. The antidote to fear is love. As the Apostle John puts it, there is no fear in love, for perfect love drives out fear. When my um, daughters, when they were a bit younger and they had trouble sleeping at night, it's often because, uh, as many kids feel, they're a bit scared of something. Monsters on the bed, under the bed, nightmares. I always say, don't worry about the monsters under the bed. They're not real. It's the thieves coming through the window that you need to be worried about. I've stopped doing that now. But anyway, I used to sit with them and pray if they were struggling to sleep. And I would pray that they wouldn't be scared. Or I'd pray that God would take um, any fears or anxieties away from them. Which is, of course, totally legitimate. But then I realised what they most needed to be at peace and to have a good night's sleep is to know that they are loved because perfect love drives out fear. So that's what I pray for. Now I pray that God's love would flood them, that they would feel safe in his arms. It's amazing how quickly they fall asleep peacefully after that. Because the gospel says we are protected, we are loved that we belong. Unconditional, perfect love casts out all our fear because when we know we're loved by the king of the universe, questions like, I wonder what might happen, are questions that we stop asking ourselves. The truth is there are a lot of threats out there. Many of them are very real and very dangerous, particularly as we've seen this week to the most vulnerable people in our community, people of colour, women and many others. We must not take those threats lightly and we must stand up, of course, against all injustice and violence and protect one another. But so too must we be people of the gospel. People like Ananias, who see the image of God in all human beings and believe in his amazing grace that says to everyone who receives it, you are now my brother, you are now my sister but also the one which heals our own wounds of fear and threat. So, as we close, why don't you try to open yourself again? You just might need to close your eyes, open your hands just as a way, a sign of being open. No magic in it, just the easiest way we've found to be able to receive what God wants to say to us and do for us. And in that posture, Allow his unconditional, perfect love to cast out fear and to defend you. To wrap his arms of protection around you and tell you you're safe with him. Because that is ultimately what he has come to do. Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence. 
And I just pray now for that love of Jesus, the love of the Heavenly Father, to flood our minds and bodies. That we might know again that we are children of the Most High God, brothers and sisters in your family, never to be snatched away. And I pray that we would be people who live without being ruled by fear because we know your love. So come, Spirit of the Living God, fill us once again. Amen. Amen. Have a great Sunday. Have a great week. We'll be in touch with all that's to come. See you soon. Bye. All things have passed away. Your love has stayed the same. Your constant grace remains the cornerstone. Things that we thought were dead are breathing in life again. You cause your sun to shine on dark as night. For all that you've done, we will pour out our love. This will be our anthem song Jesus we love you oh how we love you you are the one our, our hearts adore the hopeless have found